Welcome to Night Light. Except you humble yourself and become like little children, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3. I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and you've revealed them to little children. Matthew 11, verse 25. Well, this is not only a new year, but a time of momentous events in the life of this country and of the West and of the entire world, for that matter. Even if we were living in the age of our great-grandparents before electronics made news so overwhelmingly available 24-7, the current movements of the nations and the disintegration of the West would be on every street corner and on the lips and minds of most every thinking person. And it's hard not to become overwhelmed with it all. What might at first seem to be responsible watchfulness in times like these soon slide over into a sense of being drowned in too much information and also in misinformation. What is true is often burdensome and what is manifestly false and twisted to manipulate us is infuriating. We then become wrongly motivated to put things right or maybe worse, we are so deluged with the lies that we become passive and inactive and go into some self-soothing place of ignorant bliss, reconciling ourselves to the inevitable hopelessness of it all. But there's always another place, a much higher place, other than these two extremes, where God calls us and meets with us, and if we will allow him, has promised to keep us. We tend to quote verses sometimes out of context and claim them for our own, in personal situations. That's not necessarily a wrong thing to do. In fact, quite often it's perfectly right thing to do. But one such verse is Isaiah 26, verse 3. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me because he trusts in me. That promise can stand on its own outside the context in which it was first given. But if we place it back in its original context and we'll get an even greater picture of what it promises because it was first given in the context of a great political, economic, and military shaking. If you read the entire chapter and go on into chapter 27, it's a panorama of the end of the age with all the nations being shaken to their core. And it's in that setting that God says he will keep us in. The Hebrew says, peace, peace which in the Hebrew vernacular means perfect, complete, immovable, inner quiet of heart and soul that nothing can disturb no matter what may be happening outside of us. So we do have God's promise that not only can he give us peace, he will help us come to a place of living in unshakable peace no matter what is unfolding in the world around us. Now, this is being recorded three months before the time you hear it. By the time you hear this message, only God knows what kind of world events we will be experiencing and facing. With that in mind, how do we come to this place of peace? Psalm 131, David offers us the most important advice we can hear at such a time that we now live in. 
Though he's the king of Israel and the overruling power of all the surrounding nations, here he reveals the reason why he is entrusted with that power and the source of his power, the source of his peace. This is the second shortest psalm in the Bible, but as Spurgeon said of it, it's the shortest to read and the longest to learn to do. Psalm 131, Lord, my heart has not been haughty, nor have my eyes been lifted up too high, nor have I striven for great things, nor have things too wonderful for me been on my mind. But I have calmed and contented myself like a weaned child on its mother. Like a weaned babe am I with myself. Wait, O Israel, for the Lord, now and forevermore. David is saying, I don't think I can either understand, much less rule over or handle all the huge events and issues of the world. I do not go about in a spirit of confrontation seeking to exert myself, which is what the Hebrew concept there is, a a self-appointed policeman of the nations, going about among the great is, is the phrase there. I have calmed myself or restrained myself, and am contented like a weaned child on its mother. The image in the Hebrew text is something to the effect that David has, quote, taken himself in hand, and in spite of not having the comforts he had rested in up till now, and in spite of those comforts being withdrawn, He's learning to rule over his emotions, his reactions to negative events, and is the Hebrew word is leveling himself, balancing himself, like a weaned child sitting on his mother's lap. This is a great image. He's utterly dependent on her in one sense, resting fully in her lap, but he's taking himself in hand and demanding of himself to grow up a bit, to stop demanding that she give him what he wants on his terms. So he's both calm, self-restrained, and content to be that way. There's a difference between being being calm and self-restrained and being contented to be. She was once his source of nourishment and comfort, as he says in Psalm 22, verse 9, On my mother's breast I learned to hope and trust. But like a toddler has to learn to control himself and not demand the previous comforts of infanthood, So David is learning that he must also rein in his demands and longings for previous comforts. And like a maturing toddler, he must level himself on God's lap and trust in God's arms without the previous degrees of comfort being given. This is an act of increasing, maturing trust in God. The Hebrew phrase translated in most of our texts as like a weaned child with its mother, is actually kind of a complicated thing when you translate it literally in English. Like a weaned child with its mother, I am with myself. The meaning is I'm no longer a totally passive taker from the breast, but I'm learning to be with the Lord and can control myself not to panic or scream or cry for the breast that I previously mindlessly took in, but I'm sitting up, balancing on my caregiver's lap and learning to rule over myself under his care. 
I'm able to do this because I'm growing in trust. So he closes the psalm with the statement, O Israel, wait for the Lord. Trust him now and forever. A few thoughts about this. When David was weaned, he was not being weaned off anything bad. In fact, it was the very source of his life he was being weaned from. Uh, There was not only nothing wrong with what he had to give up. There was everything right with what he had to give up. But that level of life support had served its purpose for that period of his life and was no longer what he needed. He couldn't possibly know what he needed in its place. So like any ignorant, self-centered child would do, or adult for that matter, when we had always depended on something that's taken away from us, He screamed out in anger and pain and hunger for the immediate restoration of the good old days. But in that pain, he had to stop and consider what was going on and what was being required of him now. And in that experience of change, which we all have to face in varying degrees of maturing life, he found he had no choice. He would have to let go of what he once knew and he would have to quiet himself He had to learn to rule over himself. I guess we could say he did have a choice not to do that, but that's really not a choice worth considering, is it? Jesus refers to this very thing in Luke 21, verses 10 through 18, where he's describing the impending desolation of Jerusalem by the Romans in which his disciples would face persecution, be brought up before rulers and judges, be mistreated and some killed, But then he says in verse 19, by your patience, you will maintain maintain control over your soul. The King James Version says, in your your patience, possess ye your souls. Um, It's not very clear. It's by by this developing patience that you're doing, you will maintain proper control over yourself. These verses have a current application also. Because Jesus then telescopes forward to the time of the end of the age when the times of the Gentiles will be completed and Jerusalem is back in the hands of the Jewish people, which happened in 1948 and more fully fulfilled in 1967 after the Six-Day War. So to us also is given the promise that in the face of persecution, being brought up before magistrates and rulers in the grip of all sorts of negative events and even death. In our patience, we will learn to maintain proper control over our souls. This obviously is not referring to our being in control of our destiny or as if our salvation is ultimately a a product of our good performance. It means that as we maintain our stance of truth in the face of evil because of our confidence in God's love and care for us, that we will therefore maintain our our con- control of ourselves. We will be fully present to ourselves, to others, and most of all, to God. And if we die, we live. And if we live, we live. Most of all, uh, we triumph in, in the face of all of this, regardless if we are in this, this position. But the implication here and throughout Scripture is that this is something we have to learn to do. 
And that classroom where we learn to do this is in the daily difficulties of life, the big ones and the little ones. And sometimes the little ones are more demanding than the big ones. Here's just a few of these many verses that refer to this. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings because they produce patience or endurance. Now there is a difference between patience and endurance. And we've discussed that in previous series. So I'm not going to go into that now. But patience and endurance. We rejoice in our sufferings because they produce patience which develops endurance. And that develops hope. Hebrews 10.36, you need to persevere because after you've done the will of God, you will receive the promise. James 1.3 and 4, the testing of your faith develops endurance. So let this process have its perfect work in you so that you can be complete and lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 10. Humble yourselves, quiet yourselves like a weaned child, so to speak, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The Greek word there, cares for you, means he watchfully cares over you like a parent over a child. Be self-controlled and alert. Now, this, this may seem contradictory, but it's not. These two go perfectly together. As you learn to rest in the Lord, you also learn to battle evil from that resting place. In just a moment, we're going to look at the prophet Habakkuk and see this amazing picture of this balance in Habakkuk. He says, while you're resting and, and, and snuggling, Be self-controlled and alert. Why? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone he can devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So you're snuggling and you're struggling. You're snuggling in the Lord and you're wrestling against evil. And you do the wrestling because you've learned to do the snuggling. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a while will himself restore you, strengthen you, establish, and settle you. Now notice we have the power to allow or to stop this process. David said he had learned to control himself. How did he do that? Not by gritting his teeth, but by learning to rest, by balancing himself on his father's lap. In Hebrew, to wait, to trust, and to hope are all directly related words. The Lord once told me in the midst of a really difficult time I was facing, son, if you're going to trust me, you have to trust the process because I am in the process. Psalm 27, verse 13 and 14. I would have collapsed had I not trusted that I would see the goodness of the Lord not off in heaven, but in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he will strengthen, he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Revelation 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my commandment to endure 
and to be patient. I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming over the face of the entire earth. Revelation fourteen twelve, which is right after the description of the judgment of evil and the destruction of evil men. Here is the call for patient endurance to those who keep the commandments of God and have their faith in Jesus. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, for they rest from their labors and their works will follow them. So this weaning that begins in early life goes on and on for us as a developmental process that repeats itself. This is why James tells us to count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations because this is the very power that is working for our good in bringing us up and out of our infantile, screaming, self-focused appetites and into the place of being able to sit with our Father, leaning back on his chest and learn to care for what he cares for. We are becoming sons and daughters of the Father, not merely little children. But here's the wonderful, ironic truth. We get there by being childlike. What is it that we are to do in order to endure? We trust, not like a wise old sage who has come to trust only because all of his curiosities have been satisfied, But on the contrary, we trust like a little weaned child who doesn't know necessarily why the breast has been taken away and doesn't know what is next and what he needs, but he's learned to trust the one who does know. We begin begin this growing process by becoming a little child. See how the prophet Habakkuk faced this. His name is fascinating. It means in Hebrew to embrace as if embracing a beloved child. But it also means in a different context to embrace as in a a wrestling match. Now, how do we wrestle with these huge, overwhelming, end-time cosmic events? We snuggle. Keep in mind, we do not know much about who Habakkuk was. He was seemingly a member of the Levitical choir at the time of Jeremiah. So he was a a no-name, no-high-profile choir member of a local church, so to speak. He was a simple, God-loving man of faithfulness to Yahweh who was troubled by the evil of his country and the danger of the times he lived in. He saw the movement of the impending terrible events around him. And like us, he was deeply grieved over the horror stories he was constantly being uh, faced with, in the, not only in the sins of his nation, but in the in, inhumane, monstrous approach of the Babylonians, as well as the godlessness and insanity of, of his own people in Judah. So in frustration and some sense of desperation, he goes up to his prayer tower to seek the Lord in order to try to gain understanding of the world he's now having to live in. Remember, he's not Habakkuk the prophet who is part of the Bible. He's just Habakkuk, the little guy who doesn't have any power on earth by which to take action on these large, huge subjects. 
His name means in the usual translation, one warmly hugged by his mother, so to speak. But now, from the place of smallness, he rises up and enters into a realm of intercessory prophetic prayer and God reveals to him what he now reveals to us in the book of Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets. Minor doesn't mean of small importance. It only means its length. It's not not its power or anointing or authority, just its length. In this place of prophetic power, he rises up from a posture of being an embraced child to become a wrestler in prayer who embraces the battle with the enemy. Remember Paul's imagery in Ephesians 6.12. Our wrestling match is not against flesh and blood, but it is against principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. We don't wrestle flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. Habakkuk wrestles with the conflict in prayer to God, not by directly attacking the powers, but this is no less a wrestling conflict he he does it from the weakness of a dependent child in his father's presence. It's a paradox, and we need to grasp it and live in it. When Habakkuk sees the revelation of what is coming, he responds with these words. Habakkuk 3, verses 16 through 18. When I heard my answer, my stomach trembled, my lips quivered at the voice Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself. I must rest quietly, he says. Until the day when all these events unfold, I must rest quietly. God has completed the judgment of the nations, he says. Until God has completed that judgment, I will rest quietly. Then he says, Though the fig tree shall not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no wheat, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like a deer and cause me to stand on my high places." What was it he had seen in his prayer time? Chapter 2, verse 14 of Habakkuk. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what he saw. So as a result of this revelation, he he cries in in chapter 3, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard your word and stand in awe of your deeds. O Lord, revive your work. In the midst of these years, in the midst of these terrible years, do those deeds again. Make them known. In wrath, Lord, remember your mercy. In resting, Habakkuk draws close to the Lord's heart like a little child. And in that place, he's able to receive revelation. And he awakens from that revelation in a stance of wrestling prayer against the horrors that he sees. Then he returns to that place of rest as a child, waiting patiently for God to revive his work in the midst of the evil days. He concludes that thought uh, while everything around him seems to be dying and failing. 
And yet he will rejoice in the Lord like a little child because the end of all this will be that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is how we face these days that we're in. Now I want to go to another prophet who we don't know a lot about. We didn't know much about Habakkuk. We don't know much about this man either. Yet he wrote 12 of the most important psalms of our Bible. In order to help you get to know him, I'm going to read to you an excellent background overview written by a teacher named Richard Thompson who did such an excellent job of writing this information that I'm going to presume on his work and read it in its entirety. Just listen and learn about a person you hardly know yet whose words are vital for us now in the time that we're living in now. You may have noticed when reading certain psalms that some are written not by David, but by a man named Asaph. Well, who was Asaph? Richard Thompson writes, Have you ever been disillusioned with people? Have you ever had life just not work out the way you expected it to? Have you ever wondered why it seems the faithful suffer while the wicked prosper? Have you ever questioned God when it seems like he wasn't keeping his promises? If so, you will want to learn about one of the great men of faith in the Bible who faced all of these tests and asked all those questions. His name was Asaph. Most Christians don't even recognize his name. Even those who do, do, don't seem to recognize his importance. They probably just know he had something to do with the Psalms. It's recognized that Asaph was David's music director. Probably wrote much of the original, now lost, music for David's Psalms. But much more importantly, he wrote 12 Psalms himself. He wrote more of the Bible than did Peter, James, Jude, Jonah, Amos, Micah, Joel, Malachi, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Nahum, Haggai, or Obadiah. Interestingly enough, if we take the time to dig it out, the Bible tells more about Asaph's life than it tells us about any other author of Scripture except Moses, David, Samuel, and perhaps Isaiah, Hosea, and Jeremiah. We know the times Asaph lived in, circa 1020 to 920 B.C. From David's reign through Solomon's to Rehoboam's. We know he lived in Jerusalem. We know that he worked as the director of music at David's tent of meeting and at Solomon's temple. We also know a great deal about his personal and family life. We also know the great historical and spiritual events which were the context of Asaph's life. It's important to reconstruct Asaph's life because without understanding his life and times, it is impossible to fully comprehend the faith that he exerted amidst adversity that you see in Asaph's Psalms. Who was Asaph? Asaph was a young priest from the tribe of Levi. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem in about 1000 to 995 B.C., his father, Berechiah, was appointed doorkeeper of the Ark. And Asaph was so talented that David put him in charge of the music before the Ark of the Covenant. 
He was assisted there by his brother Zechariah. He was probably in his 20s at that time. At the time, the main tabernacle and the most senior priests and Levites were in in Gibeon, but Asaph was in charge of the music in Jerusalem where the ark and the king were. We know that Asaph kept that position at least until the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem almost 40 years later. At that time, the worship services of the tent of meeting and the tabernacle were considered or, or were consolidated into the temple and the Ark of the Covenant was reinstalled in its rightful place in the Holy of Holies next to the Holy Place. Asaph served in Jerusalem for all of David's reign and no doubt set to music many of the psalms that, that God gave to David. He was in Jerusalem when God gave David the great promise that David would have a son who would be the Messiah and reign forever. He had to have been very close to David and was probably afflicted by a little bit of hero worship of David, um, who wouldn't have been. He also heard David tell the people and the elders of Israel that his son Shlomo, Solomon, was the answer to God's promise of a son who would build God's temple and establish a kingdom that would last forever. He saw the death of David, the ascension of Solomon, and the building of the temple. He thought he was standing on the verge of Israel's millennium. He was on the mountaintop. After Solomon dedicated the temple, Asaph saw Israel's golden age begin to turn into something quite different than what he expected. After a promising beginning, Solomon turned his back on God and pursued power, wealth, luxury, and human wisdom, as well as worshiping of false gods. To finance these pursuits, the people were oppressed with slavery and taxes. Asaph saw Solomon becoming a wicked man who entrusted the administration of his kingdom to other wicked men. There's good reason to believe that during Solomon's reign, Asaph's brother Zechariah was assassinated in the temple by Solomon's agents. Neither Asaph nor Zechariah would keep silent about Solomon's wickedness. Zechariah paid the ultimate price. Let me just mention here, there's plenty of speculation about the the murder of Zechariah. And we don't have time here to go into the various concepts related to it. But there's good reason for Mr. Thompson's conclusions, and I believe he is accurate. I go on quoting Mr. Thompson's work. After Solomon's death, Asaph, now a very old man, saw David's kingdom torn in two by God's decree. The northern part, restless under Solomon's punishing taxes and resentful at his wasteful luxury, rebelled and took Jeroboam as king. And the southern part, mostly the tribe of Judah, went with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. The northern kingdom rejected the Levites and the temple. After that, the Egyptians invaded along with Israel's neighbors, took Jerusalem, burned and stripped the temple, killed many of the priests, and left mocking Israel in the dust and mocking Israel's God. Since many of Asaph's relatives served in the temple as either musicians or doorkeepers, many of them must have perished in this attack. In the winter of his years, Asaph surveyed the wreckage of his hopes. The kingdom was destroyed, 
The temple was in ruins. Many of his own family had been killed, and Solomon as the Messiah, quote-unquote, had been exposed as a fraud. If there was ever a man who had an excuse for being disillusioned, Asaph was that man. David, his hero, who had been used mightily by God in his earlier years, had in his last years deceived the people and himself about what God had told him concerning Solomon. I will interject. I think David did it inadvertently. I don't think he did it on purpose, but I'll go on. David had indicated that Solomon was Messiah, the anointed one, understand, but the Messiah. Then Solomon, who God spoke to twice and had greatly blessed, turned from the wisdom and grace of God to the worship of idols and a a philosophy more suited to Nietzsche than to the son of King David. Pick almost any verse in Ecclesiastes for confirmation. Asaph and his family, who had remained faithful to the truth for a recompense, became victims of violence, murder, at the hands of Solomon and the Egyptians. Yet through it all, Asaph finds God's faithfulness to be a strong tower of hope. God reveals to Asaph the ultimate truth of what he had promised It was not what man's ignorance and David's impatience had thought or sought, but what God's wisdom had provided. And it was better, oh, so much better. It was not Solomon. It was not Solomon's destroyed kingdom and burned temple, not Solomon's worldly despairing wisdom. It was not Solomon's corrupting and corruptible riches. It was Jesus Christ, the true Shlomo, Prince of Peace, who was to come, and it was his eternal kingdom, his perfect wisdom, his true riches, and the temple of his body. As you read the Psalms of Asaph, you will see how much his Psalms speak to the events of his life and his times. Psalm 73 reflects Asaph's bitterness at the murder of his brother. It also gives us a much-needed commentary on what was happening in Jerusalem in those years between the dedication of the temple and the end of Solomon's reign. In the narration in Kings and Chronicles, this period is almost blank. Psalm 82 and Psalm 75 reflect Asaph's disillusionment with Solomon and his realization that Solomon was not the prince of peace that would come. Psalm 76 and 80 reflect Asaph's pain during the division of Solomon's kingdom when Rehoboam took Judah and Jeroboam took Ephraim and nine other tribes. Psalm 74 and Psalm 79 reflect Asaph's distress at the invasion of Shishak, the king of Egypt. Asaph was an old man of at least a hundred years when he wrote most of his psalms. What do Habakkuk and Asaph and you have in common? There's a lot. And as I said, since I'm recording this a good three months before you'll hear it, no telling what kind of world events may be unfolding at the time you you do finally hear these words. So with all that in mind, Knowing now a little bit more of who Asaph is, what can we draw from this? Their lives and their times and the turmoil they lived in 
neither Asaph nor Habakkuk were men of great position or power. And yet they were. Their great position and power was in prayer and in childlike trust in God. They loved God and longed for his presence. And when the civilization around them seemed to collapse, they turned to the Lord in a childlike dependence and inner humility that made them trustworthy partners with God in his kingdom enterprise. They positioned themselves as humble children and God gave them a mature son's revelation and vision. Their response to that vision was to stand in prayer as kings and priests to wrestle against the evil of their generation in faith, trusting God's character in the face of seemingly hopeless events. One more word about Asaph. If you read Psalm 73, you read a man who's almost losing his foothold in faith. Something has happened that has shaken his ability to go forward. We already know from Mr. Thompson's writing what that event was. It was very likely, among other things, the murder of his brother, Zechariah. Again, I can't go into this in detail. If you read Second Chronicles chapter 24, you read there about the murder of a Zechariah the prophet. But that very likely is a different story than the one that we're referring to here. Jesus refers to it in Matthew chapter 23. And so there are several Zechariahs and several murders. This particular one struck Asaph through the heart as his brother was killed by crooked politicians who had turned away from God and were destroying and crushing underfoot the purposes of God and God's people. So can you relate to any of that? Asaph's rage at pompous evil in high places would have been revved up hugely if this had been a personal loss. It's bad enough that he would have to watch his nation undergo it, but what happens when this touches your own heart and your own family? Have you ever considered what a difference that might make in you? Maybe you know already. Maybe you already have had the stupidity and arrogance and evil of this present government and its lackeys injure or steal or even murder someone close to you. How did Asaph respond? He wrote Psalm 73. It would take an entire study to examine it properly, but in both Psalm 73 and again in Psalm 77, when he is overwhelmed with evil around him, he makes this statement in, in verse 13 of 73 and verse 17, excuse me, verse 13 of 77 and verse uh, 17 of Psalm 73. He says, I didn't understand until I entered the sanctuary and there I understood. Now, to refer to this Entering the sanctuary, in our thinking, we tend to think, well, he's saying he went to church and heard a good sermon, and that corrected his bad thinking. No, I don't think that's what this is saying at all. The word sanctuary in the, in the Hebrew text is plural here. I didn't understand until I came into the sanctuaries. Well, what does that mean? Well, say it like this. I didn't understand until I entered your holy places. 
your holy places. This is not talking about till I heard a sermon or till I heard a rabbi comment on it. He's saying, I entered into the holy place where you dwell and in that place with you, that those places with you, I came to understand what was going on. I, 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 was, re, I was given a revelation. Do you see the process here? Childlike humility, revelation from God, spiritual warfare, childlike humility. Childlike humility, revelation from God, spiritual warfare, return to childlike humility. This, this repetitive process always comes back to childlike resting. We don't end the process in warfare. We end the process tucked back into a snuggle, not a struggle. A snuggle, not a struggle. This means it was when he came into the places where God reveals his own heart and the levels of intimacy with him, when he came to him in his holiness and placed himself in his presence and sought him with all his heart, then he saw. This is very similar to Habakkuk, who also at a time of great national distress and world-shaking events could find no place to rest until he went into his prayer tower and there he saw. Now, I think regardless of what may be going on in the world at the time you hear this message, this is going to be extremely applicable to where we are. Whether we are facing world-shaking events on the international scale, the national scale, or in our own private warfare. Entering into the holy place, seeking the face of God. There's one more person I want to mention though we're going to go into more details about him, I hope, in a later time together. And that's Job. Job also is a man who is reduced to nothing but childlike trust. That's all he has left. And in that childlike trust, he cries out for answers, like Habakkuk, like Asaph. And God comes to him in Job chapter 38, 39 and 40. I remember many years ago going through, at that time, the darkest time of my life, and it still remains to be one of the darkest times of my life. And I decided uh, I would just obviously just read the book of Job, you know, black and white thinking. I would just, I'll just read the book of Job and get the answer for how to go through troubled times. I was very young, just learning to study the scriptures. And I got to the end of the book of Job and I threw, I threw my Bible. I'm not recommending anybody do this, but I threw my Bible across the room. I was so angry. And not only was I angry at uh, not getting any black and white Greco-Roman style answers, but I was really angry at the way I thought of God in the way he treated Job. Because, you see, it says in Psalm 18 to the, to the crooked God appears crooked. If you have a crookedness in you toward God, it, 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 it's like looking through broken glasses. You, you, you see the broken piece in the glasses and project that onto the one you're looking at thinking he's the one who's broken. No, the broken place was in me. When, when I read those words in, in Job where God says, stand up like a man and answer, 
I thought God was being just a sheer bully. This is why it's going to take a whole study on Job to go into this detail. But I threw my Bible across the room and I yelled at God. Here again, I'm not telling you that's the way to do it. But uh, God's not put off by that, by the way. Uh, even though I'm telling you that that's not the way to do it. God's not put off by it if you're in a place in your life where screaming and yelling toward God is all you find yourself able to do. It's better to scream and yell toward God than to stay religious and quiet and hypocritical toward the world and people. It wasn't that God explained to him the cosmic battle that was going on over Job. But Job said, when I saw him, all my questions were answered. Um, in Psalm 73, one of the things that Asaph says that has always meant so much to me was he says, when, when I was full of bitterness and unanswered questions, I was like a brute beast. I was, I was reduced to the anger of a, of an animal. I can relate to that. Then he says, yet I am always with you. You guide me with your right hand. You give me your wisdom and your counsel. And you will eventually lead me into glory. Then he says, who do I have in heaven but you? And upon the earth beside you, I desire nothing. My heart and my flesh may fail. But you are the strength of my heart, and you are my inheritance forever. And that's the place God brought me that day in that apartment. I felt like a crazy animal. And yet I was aware the whole time I was raging and screaming and crying and demanding answers. Yeah, you wonder if my neighbors didn't call the police. Well, thankfully, they didn't. But uh, I, I, when I read those words, I was like a I was like a brute beast, and yet you are always with me. You, I'm always with you. You hold me by your hand and hold me by my hand, uh, and you give me your wisdom. And you will guide me in with that wisdom, and you will lead me home. See, the implication here is God, the Bible says his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's not a it's not a floodlight to our highway that gives us way ahead all the information we need. It is a lamp to our feet, step by step. We don't get uh, all of the sustenance we need for the whole journey. We get daily bread. Daily bread. Why does God do it that way? Because he knows how we are. If we, if we had strength for the journey, we would run way ahead. He says, don't be like the horse that runs ahead. Don't be like the mule that lags behind. Walk with me. Walk with me. Today, give us today our daily bread. I mean, I have to breathe every few seconds. I have to eat 
regularly. I, I have to drink water. That's all put together purposely, among other things, to underscore uh, my awareness of my dependency and my creatureliness. That's part of what helps me quiet myself like a weaned child. Then I have to let go of the things that I have used for comfort, and those things have to become for me the things I give up, the things I release, and that's what causes me to grow into the next level. And then I go through the process again where I have to quiet myself like a winged child and then wait for revelation and then enter into the battle and the warfare. And then once I've come through the warfare, I quiet myself again like a weaned child. Now, don't get the picture of me being a weaned child who then all of a sudden rises up in this warrior identity, but then like the Incredible Hulk, after he's done fighting, shrinks back down to just normal little little boy, little girl place. No, Twyla Paris said it so well. The warrior is a child. The warrior doesn't become a grown-up and then goes back to a child. The warrior is a child. Anyway, one more thing I want to share share with you before we close. One of the things that has to happen in this process, are you getting, I don't know if I'm getting this across well, this is a a repetitive process. It's not that once I was a child and then I grew up and now I'm no longer a child. It is I was a child, then I grew and and became a, a more mature child, And then I learned how to listen to God and receive revelation and enter into his enterprises with him and care about what he cares about, which is sonship. Whether you're a woman or a man, that's sonship. And then in that sonship, you still remain childlike. I think you got that. I don't need to keep saying it. But, But let me tell you one more story that will illustrate how this process goes over and over When Mary and I moved to North Carolina, it was a very traumatic thing for me. I love Texas. I have lots of reasons why I love Texas. Uh, Not the least of which is that's where I found Mary. That's where we married. That's where we raised our children. Uh, And lots of reasons. But for me, leaving Texas was the will of God, clearly manifested to be the will of God, Um, and it was heartbreaking, which underscores the fact that the will of God is not always fun, and the will of God is not always what you're ready to do, what you want to do. Sometimes you'll hear preachers say, well, if it's the will of God, God God will arrange your heart so that you want to do it. Well, he's still arranging. I've been here 20 years, and I still miss Texas, but the point is, Having said all that, um, I I got to a place uh, here in in uh, the, the North Carolina mountains where I was really in grief, and uh, I was praying through it the best I knew how, and the Lord was speaking to me about humbling myself like a child again. By this time, I'm forty five years old. And I'm humbling myself like a child. And he speaks a verse to me. I'd never read it before. Never read it before. But it was one of those times where I'm just kind of flipping through Scripture, trying to find something that 
I could hook on to. And the, the Holy Spirit just lit this verse up for me. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11. I'd never paid any attention to that verse before. I'd never, didn't remember ever reading it. And what does it say? You say, what? Well, let me tell you what it said. Then you can wonder why that meant anything to me. It says, from a child, Moab has remained on his lees. He has not been poured from vessel to vessel, but his old flavor remains in him. Isn't that comforting? How would you like to have that written up on a plaque on your wall or make a t-shirt out of that verse? Doesn't that, yeah, isn't that a great verse? What does it mean? Well, I didn't, I floundered around saying, well, I don't really get much out of that. Well, about that time, a knock came on the door, and I went to the door, and I opened it, and there, a friend of mine was standing in the doorway with a videotape in her hand, and she said, I saw this at work. She worked at the Christian bookstore, and she said, I saw this at work. I just felt like I needed to bring it to you for you to watch. And I thanked her, and she went about her business, and I went in, and out of desperation, with not knowing what else to do, I stuck it in the machine and began to watch a sermon by Catherine Coleman, an old video of of an old sermon by Catherine Coleman, recorded back in the early, early 1960s. And guess what her text was? Isaiah chapter, excuse me, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 48 Verse 11. And I sat awestruck as she explained the meaning of that verse. Moab has not been poured from vessel to vessel so that the lees, what are the lees? Well, when you make wine, the the sediment, the sediment that, that goes down the bottom of the vessel. And, and and fills up the bottom of the vessel, it becomes rancid because it's old and it's impure. And in order to keep the wine from becoming full of old sediment, you have to pour it from vessel to vessel to vessel. And the Lord spoke to me so clearly, and he said, listen, I will not let you be like Moab, Clay. I have no intention of letting you settle on your sediment. I will not let your past settle down inside of you and become uh, uh, rancid and old. I've poured you from vessel to vessel, and the Lord took me right through my past from my boyhood in Mississippi through the college years to the Gulf, Gulf Coast years, and then from there through the short time in Arkansas, which finally led to Texas through Texas, from Texas to London and England and then Europe and then uh, then to North Carolina. And he, he, the Lord, I mean, look, the, the pain didn't stop. But I knew I was hearing from God. And so I had to choose what David said he did. I had to rein myself in and quiet myself and set balance myself on my father's lap and be like a weaned child. I had to give up crying over the loss of Texas, crying over what I considered uh, my world and my home and uh, 
all the things that were familiar to me. You know, I loved being able to go to the post office in Texas because right across the street was the church where Mary and I got married. I just loved that. Giving that up was a, a deal. I remember first time I walked in the post office in North Carolina, I looked up and saw the emblem of uh, North Carolina and it wasn't shaped like Texas and I resented it. <laughs> anyway, Father, I pray for every person listening to this message that wherever state we're, whatever state we're in, literally, what, whatever state we're in, we would quiet ourselves, humble ourselves, become like a weaned child so that we can receive revelation, so we can rise up and stand in battle and then return to your arms, uh, trusting you for the, for the blessed, glorious, ultimate outcome. When as Habakkuk said, The glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. Thank you, Lord, that the movement of the nations is only for the purpose of the bringing about of the fullness of your kingdom, the overthrow of evil, and a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. In Jesus' precious holy name, thank you, Father. Amen.